0: so this is take 16 episode one and it may well be take 25 or 35 uh, i've lost count and i've lost memory, memory space in my drive because of all these freaking recordings but we're here episode one yeah
1: it yeah it i mean it's 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 take 16 or 25 or 35 or whatever after six months a full rebrand a journey to say the least um, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a long one, but we're happy to be here, that's for
0: sure. <laughs> um, what would you say to your younger self if you had to do this all over again? Don't start a podcast. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant. I share about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Bout.
1: And I'm Yusuf Amanullah.
0: And in this episode, we're talking about the politics of national museums, how countries choose to remember their history.
1: So, welcome everyone to the first episode of the Season Migrant podcast. Um, we really appreciate the support that we've gotten so far, and um, we're really excited to go on this journey with you and over the next 10 weeks we've got some really exciting topics that we want to discuss um, and engage with our audience and hopefully there'll be many more seasons to come but we are kicking off our podcast with national museums or rather the politics of national museums leonard why did you want to talk
0: about this <laughs> Well, so I remember when I first pitched the idea to you and there was this big pause and then there's like, well, <laughs> we can include it in the list. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think now that, you know, we've read about it and researched it, that there's actually so much behind the scenes when it comes to national museums. And I feel the idea that people immediately have of museums is, I don't know, the classic school trip or a trip with parents where they kind of drag you to see art and history with capital a and capital h um and yeah it's kind of overwhelmingly just a bit boring <laughs> um but you know i think it comes from the fact that we're not we we don't get to uh to frame our experience in museums as something that we should actually be quite critical about because if we're looking at you know everything about a museum in the way that you know, objects are selected to the narrative that binds them all together. You know, those are all very intentional things that people have decided upon. But when we go into these places, we really feel like there's this, you know, there's authority from them, which of course there is because there's either experts behind the scenes or the government, but then that authority becomes this idea that whatever we're shown is quite objective. But, you know, if we think to the nerdiness and the passion that people have about historical events or political ones or about how things are portrayed in the media and about social issues. These are really big deals that or rather, things that you know are a big deal Um, and people are very passionate about how things are talked about and here we have this place this big building that claims to be the house for all the important events of the country and not just all of them but it gets to select by its own criteria, which one it thinks are the most important ones. And then it gets to build its own story about them that it sees fit. And I feel when you when you frame it like that, in terms of you know all these choices that are made on our behalf about what it means to be from a country, what things constitute the identity of that place, there's so much to unpack there. And often we just let it be and we take it on as if it was fact. Um, but really it's anything but
1: yeah i think the reason why i was initially apprehensive about this topic was because i always saw museums as this these big old buildings uh with a bunch of marble statues and some oil on canvas paintings and i always saw them almost as well this is it this is history and it's a thing of the past let's just move on but the thing that you realize when actually looking into the way that museums are curated and the messaging the the subliminal messaging that um certain curations are trying to um put across to to the audience you realize that there's actually a lot more to what is on display and so truth at that point becomes a lot more subjective it becomes a lot more of actually a play on power and
0: uh, who's in charge. Yeah, I think on this point of of who's in charge, um, one of the most fascinating and quite outrageous things to come out of my research for this was how the original builders and planners of museums tried to use the space itself to subconsciously regulate people's behaviors in museums. And to understand why that was a particular desire, we have to understand the context behind all of these these museums and their origins. So we go back to the beginning of the 19th century. And back in the day, we had these these pre-museums that were attached to debating houses and literary societies. And as was the period, it would only really be the middle classes that ever got access to these places there were all kinds of social codes that were in place in these, in these spaces. And even then, you know, like what was a, a working class person doing in these extremely uh, pretentious and, and, and barriered places? And this, this inaccessibility of these spaces actually um, got acknowledged by the middle classes. And they were like, actually, we were pretending that we're all about reason and enlightening people, but we're keeping this kind of locked away so let's open it up to the masses but the very first issue that came to mind for them was okay but our you know our or their understanding of what the working classes were like were rowdy and uncivilized and the first thing that came to their mind in this extremely condescending way was okay so yes let's open things up but we're also going to make sure that we we educate the working classes and we we make sure they're mannered and polite and so things that for example now we didn't really realize have particular origins, but that we find very intuitive. Like when you go to an airport or to a concert, the way that you queue up or move around spaces so that everyone transits really orderly and stuff, that all comes from museums and exhibition halls in the 19th century. And the, the perhaps like the craziest thing that came out of this period was the idea that these planners wanted everyone to at all times be policing everyone else's behavior and feel like their behavior was being policed and the 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 exhibition hall as a as a building and most museums in that period have these mezzanine levels where people from balconies can look down and be always watching the main hall which you know the intention of that was to make people in the main hall always feel like they're being watched and therefore act according to certain social cues and just generally just be, just be, you know, subdued people. Um, And again, just all kinds of subconscious power there, all kinds of, all kinds of regulations of behavior that are quite crazy.
1: You know, not, not to sound weird, but it kind of reminds me of uh, the Unabomber guy and his constitution, right? Like he mentions (laughs) someone's been been watching (laughs) that. It's about, you know how well why do people still stop at traffic lights when it's a red light but no one's on the street okay i see that it doesn't make sense at that point Mm -hmm. but we do it anyway just because there's a sense of order it's almost like someone's watching us or yeah that there's this just need to follow the rules at that point so it's interesting that the order comes from museums or that sense of needing to be orderly in order to be a good citizen comes from that. And I think in general, uh, when you look at the power structures in play, like over there, it's to do with orderly fashions. Um, but even in just the way that everything is set up in a museum in terms of the displays, like there's always a hidden agenda of power, either showing your own, at least at the beginning, your own colonial Sort of muscles like flexing your colonial muscles and showing how far reaching your empire is. Or, shout out um, to the British Museum,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, but also, you've got uh, these other countries that are actually trying to um, move away from those powers. So, for example, the interesting one was Bulgaria, like very soon after gaining independence, one of their main agendas was actually to set up a national museum. And the whole narrative was this sort of anti-Ottoman sentiment and trying to show that for five centuries they've been oppressed and now they're finally free from those shackles. Like power and um, and um, control is so integral to the messaging of these national
0: buildings. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that is a constant theme is that this power really can't be divorced from the way that museums operate like if we go back to the beginning of the 20th century national museums were now truly national in the sense that they were open to everyone but people were realizing that what was inside the museums the kind of culture and the kind of art that people were presenting there was actually extremely elitist um and there was an acknowledgement of that, and people were like, "Okay, we've had all of this, and we're we're modern now, so let's let's have a look at the kind of art we've been ignoring because we've been quite artsy-fartsy about it." So in England, that took the shape of people from London that were in the art circles, um, going down to to places in the countryside, which they identified as places that actually had traditions that were centuries old in terms of handicrafts and so on that hadn't really been included in any collections or any understanding of what English art was. But you know, I guess we have a really great intention of including all of this, but the way that it was talked about just tells you so much about what the perception was of it. So now we get to know about all of these handicrafts and traditional arts as folk art. And the fact that we have to caveat it and qualify it with the word folk (laughs) is telling enough. Um, and when you would look at the descriptions of, of the different objects or about the countryside lifestyle, it would always be quite idealized and infantilized. So it would be, it wouldn't talk about the genius or, or the aesthetics of things. It would always be, oh, you know, how, how quaint, how idyllic. And they would create this, these fictions about life so much that, for example, Um, This place I have in mind in the north of of England called Beamish. So it took all these very different traditions from very different villages that admittedly were quite close to each other geographically, but otherwise had their own traditions, and merged them together to create the illusion that there was this unified countryside mindset and and, and culture that just was completely fictional. Um, And again, you know, people going into these things top down, And despite having the intention to include and be accessible, actually framing things within a power structure regardless.
1: I mean, at least that's polite, right? That's still relatively nice that they want to be inclusive and they want to try and um, involve everyone as sort of demeaning and condescending as it is. It's still some sort of inclusiveness, right? Mm. On the flip side, when these countries were just forming... um, in Europe, like around Europe, like especially uh, I'm thinking about France, right? Like there was a lot of politics being played between the different regions that now were one country. So Mm -hmm. um, taking France, the elite wanted Paris to be like the hub of culture. Uh, They wanted it to be a capital city in almost every sense of the word, right? Um, Or the phrase rather. and. One way that they did this is that they sort of went, OK, we're going to get or, or we're going to take all of the funnily enough, the creme de la creme of artifacts uh, from all over the the newly formed country. So from all of the regions, meanwhile, um, all the other regions, they're going to get kind of like the hand-me-downs, the ones that Paris doesn't want. And they can put those in our uh, national museums that we're going to make um, in those regions. And on top of that, you also need to promote the same message, the same national narrative across all of these national museums. Now, you can imagine that all these different regions are going to be pretty annoyed about the fact that, well, we want to show our own individualistic traits and characteristics that we can only get from our best um, of the best. Meanwhile, on top of that, you want to shove this narrative, this narrative down all of our throats, and it got to a point where actually, in one of the ethnography museums in Paris, they set up a room like an exhibit room, and it was to show the different like regions and 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 show the different cultures within the different regions. And it wasn't supposed to be like, oh, look how fantastic France is all together. It was more like, look at these savages and all these other regions, and look how far Paris is in comparison. Like it was it was almost like this colonial message of like oh thank god we we came in and we took power because otherwise and and they said this they were like savages like those in asia and africa and there's just so much wrong with this whole messaging that they have but it was there and it's funny how national museums actually played that role which you know now looking at it some you know 140 150 years on you wouldn't really think about museums in that way.
0: Yeah, I think what's particularly crazy is when we're thinking about this story now, at least I am looking to France now and I'm like, yeah, Brittany has their own identity and so on. But if we go back to the 17th, 18th, 19th century when these things were really taking shape in terms of a national identity and what it means to be French, there wasn't one package of French ideas. It was all very much in process. And for Paris in this time specifically, to use a museum that actually, you know, the origins of the ethnographic museum are entirely colonial of them documenting their subjects and being like, oh, look at us and how great we are. And because look at them and how how crazy backward they are. And that outrageous colonial supremacist mindset then actually kicking in, not across the the world but within regions in your own country that actually you're trying to bring together under one flag one anthem one story uh, and it just seems like a massive oversight from the french government in uh in trying to achieve some kind of unity in the country
1: yeah for sure um but you know we've been talking about the formation of countries and sort of that revolution but it never really stops there right countries are always changing depending on who's in power, they want a certain message across. And I think both of us, when we were looking at certain specific um, countries and, and their motives, we can see like in a lot of them, there were these seismic shifts and they were reflected in national museums. And one of the objectives of these new powerful elites was to promote that message in those museums. Like, for example, um, I remember you telling me about China and and Mao in
0: particular. What's interesting about China, um, if we're looking at the plays that museums were given for the national narrative, again, when we think of museums, we just think of them as buildings that just happen to be there, that happen to be seen as important, but that perhaps aren't really that that much. But when we talk about China, museums were actually a really central strategy from the Communist Party in trying to to weave together all the different parts of China into a single narrative. And so much was that intention that just 10 years after the Communist Party won the Chinese Civil War and the communist revolution happened, They built over 85,000 exhibition halls around China and 865 museums in their counties to try to really push this new ideology and, and push a new narrative about what it meant to be Chinese. And fast forward 40 years to a very different China in the 80s. And the new 1982 constitution, in, in the constitution, it mentioned museums as a way to get ideology filtered down from, from the party into the people. And I can't think of a clearest example, you know, it's written down of, of political elites using museums as a, as a tool, as an instrument to, um, to legitimize their regimes.
1: That's the interesting thing, right? And that's something that I was a bit skeptical about uh, until we we delved into the topic a bit more. I always thought that, you know, we always have that joke of an English literature text and the curtains are blue and it supposedly signifies a particular emotion that the author was going through, you know, at that time and um it's almost like a pathetic fallacy and all that sort of nonsense and you know, 9 times out of 10 the curtains were blue because they were blue. But over here there was actually an agenda. There was a hidden agenda and it was by the people at the top. So it was even more important. Mm-hmm. And that's something, again, right? When you think about truth and when you think about history, they always say that history is written by the victors. But I guess you really don't realize it until you read the hidden you know, stories like behind the scenes and what was happening behind
0: closed doors to show you mm-hmm. what history is now. I think one of the most interesting things to come out of, of China and museums is the fact that after 1978, the Chinese Communist Party, they tried to politicize objectivity. And that sounds so counterintuitive, but I'll, I'll walk you through what happened. So when when Mao came to power and throughout his, his rule until his death, the narrative of the Chinese revolution was all centered around Mao, and he was almost like a biblical figure. He was the the father of the nation, and he was almost deified. He wasn't really a man. He was he actually in fact, he was portrayed so much like uh, a grand historical figure that Mao once walked into one of these museums and after walking about and reading all the narratives, he was like, "Guys, <laughs> he literally said, "Why are you treating me like a dead ancestor?" <laughs> um but as we got into the to the late 70s, the, the Communist Party was getting a rap for being inefficient, for being caught up in its own ideology. And as Deng Xiaoping took the leadership of the party in, in 1978, he used the way that the party portrayed history to signal to everyone how it was a new era for the party. So... Instead of putting Mao at the very center of the narrative, they acknowledged for the first time in official history that actually there were other people that were quite important in, in building the nation. And among them, people that were part of, of the nationalists, that were the people the, the group that, of course, the Communist Party was was fighting against in the Civil War. And by doing that, and then by also by humanizing Mao, by showing his flaws and going, going a little bit into criticizing some things that the party did in the past they tried to show themselves to be more objective and more more full-rounded in that they were they were approaching things and then they, they they took that that they did and they were like look guys we're being More objective more efficient we're not the old party anymore and in that way they they politicize that feeling of of being more objective and that seems like something that you can't politicize but they did Um, and that was a way for them to legitimize themselves
1: i mean it's actually quite funny because in in a similar vein um something very similar happened in iran right like this whole politicization of both uh history and truth so um if you look almost Almost exactly a hundred years ago, actually, um, the uh, monarchy in power was the Pahlavis. So it was Raza Shah Pahlavi, and his main objective was the westernization of Iran. So he wanted to distance Iran's sort of uh, Islamic core from uh, and and beliefs from you know the overall day to day running of the Iranian society, and I think uh in general what was happening was that you know this was the time of western industrialization of imperialization um so the intelligent elite and and you know the people in power were really almost mesmerized by it and so they almost wanted to import this view that was or this romantic view in in from europe which was you know looking at arts and culture and in that showing a story of national pride so the way that they did this was by saying okay we have to see how far back um, this Iranian identity goes and what this did was that it it had two different uh, implications one it showed that well if Iranians have been around for ages we should be proud because we've been around for so long but also look how far we've come since the beginning of the Iranian person, uh, the first Iranian people. And so what they started um, to do was sort of promote more the um, pre-Islamic period um, or the Persian dynasties from Iran. And this was done through these major infrastructural projects, particularly in Tehran. And one of those was what was back then known as the Ancient Iran Museum. So they had this one administrative block that was supposed to have the National Library, the Ethnography Museum, and the Ancient Iran Museum. And this was supposed to be almost like this beacon of <laughs> the progress. heart of the new Iran. <laughs> it really was, right? It was just, It was supposed to show the heart of, of the progress of Iran. And everything about it was about um, pre Islamic period and a sense of progression, uh, and chronology. So even the actual ancient Iran museum architecture, it was, um, a mix of, of two different types of architecture in terms of the inspiration. So the first was, uh, from the Sassanid period, um, which was the last Persian dynasty, um, and the way that they, um tried to show this was first through the entrance, which was like this big red dome type structure. Um, and then also through these courtyards that were, um, dotted around in the museum and, and the other side of it is Bo arts architecture. And the reason for that was funnily enough. Um, there was this Franco-Iranian agreement, which started off this whole national museum um craze where basically they said well well, the french said oh we're going to stop excavating for your relics and everything as long as you create a national museum and you put a french person as the director for three
0: consecutive (laughs) that's nice of them they're like okay so we're going to stop this thing that we have absolutely no right to be doing in the first place and not only that we have conditions to do so (laughs)
1: Exactly. I mean, truly masterful negotiation, like Trump-level negotiation to be honest. Like <laughs> parts of the deal is written all over this. And so you've got these two different sort of architectural styles that that have inspiro- inspired this um building and even within the museum. So there were two levels initially. The first one was the ground level. This was all pre-Islamic period um artifacts. And the upper level was Islamic artifacts. So the whole narrative was to promote this sense of chronology, the, this almost Darwinian concept I read of evolution that look how far back um, you know we originate from and look how far we've come. And what happened after a little while was that They started getting a lot more artifacts uh, from the islamic period and so the ethnography museum which was right next door they sort of used this as almost like a storage facility that they were going to put all the islamic artifacts in refurbish the ancient iran museum and then you know bring them back but right in the middle of this was the islamic revolution right and in this moment basically everything that Raza Shah Pahlavi had been working towards was completely reversed. This, It was literally, you know, it was almost like a three-pronged attack, uh, which was, you know, westernization, nationalization, and de-Islamization. And the Islamic revolution literally went, nope, and completely reversed it. And one of the ways that they tried to show, in fact, that this nationalization was almost like um, a, a curse on the Islamic region was uh, through what, how they changed the the National Museum. So it went from being the ancient Iran Museum to the National Museum of Iran. And they saw that the fact that there were pre-Islamic um, artifacts on the ground floor and the um, Islamic period artifacts were on the on the first floor as a sense of, okay, you're demoting these Islamic um, relics and, and these Islamic artifacts. So what they did was that they said, okay, we're gonna keep the ancient Iran Museum or the, now the National Museum of, Ra- of Iran. We're gonna keep that original building for pre-Islamic period. And we're gonna make the new ethnography museum into the Islamic section and even if you read the um sort of guest book that they have you read that the islamic section of the museum is much better maintained and looked after and and it's clean and it it's always refreshed whereas the pre-islamic section is sort of you know left as is and and it's it's not given the same sort of importance And also, even when you look at now the narrative of the Islamic period, you know, at the end of the day, anyone who is religious or, well, I say that quite broad strokingly, but like religion in general, yes, there's progression, but there are certain absolute truths that it's expected that you follow. Right. And no matter what period you're in, yes, the way that you interpret certain, say, scripture or whatever, um, that changes, but overall, the the main messages still stand, no matter what period you're in. And that was something that the uh, curators wanted to show. So, for example, there's a lot about the Quran in the Islamic um, section. And the overall narrative is more that the the Quran should govern our everyday life. Now, at that point, there's no sense of historical distance, right? So, it's interesting. Again, because of these political plays that were happening behind the scenes, the way that a national identity is formed and the way that history, the history of a nation and um, the truth, quote unquote, of a nation is portrayed, differs um, and and can completely, you know, almost go. 180 on itself in a matter of, you know, a couple of years.
0: Well, so this is such a hard project um, for the Iranian government. I mean, the, the revolution and the movement was called the Islamic revolution and obviously drew a lot about being for something that transcended the borders of the country, right? Also, it was it was in many ways... Um, anti-modern and obviously the nation state in itself is a is a creation of modernity Um, so you know how do you how do you both honor the fact that you're a country whilst also being at the very core something that is actually trying to overcome uh, nationalism from the previous period you know and then that's just a layer of kind of modernity versus non-modernity but then you have the whole issue of what what Islam are you representing as well, and how do you fit that with the existing package of uh, packages of tensions that you have? Of course, the revolution was was talked about in terms of Islam in general, but you also can't ignore the the sectarian elements of the state. Um, and I just feel it's fascinating to see how how people navigate that and how there's all these pressure points and and contradictions that have to be we- woven together into into one narrative. And what I find interesting as well is, as much as, for example, the the National Museum of Iran will put, for example, Islam at the very center of the narrative, when, um, when you know that that's the thing that seems to be the the fundamental characteristic about about the new Iranian state. When you see things like the Constitution of Iran. Um, it's not so much Islam that's prioritized, but for example, our requirement to be president is to be an Iranian citizen, <laughs> um, which again seems to be in contradiction with the fact that you know Islam and being Muslim is is the only relevant thing. Um, and actually, this this kind of tension and, and difficulties in weaving together something coherent reminds me of China again. So if we look at the difference between what the Chinese Communist Party um, sees the history of the country to be between the revolution in 1949 and now, the change is huge. And it comes mostly from the fact that we have a communist party that's very name is supposed to suggest uh, a communist system and, or at least a socialist system. But since 1978, the Chinese government has moved moving more and more towards a market economy. And of course, it's true that it's been a market economy that has been led by the state. But in many ways, it betrays the ideals of the founders of the party and what that country back then stood for. So you had this, this vacuum of, of ideology and elites in the Communist Party were very weary about how they were going to fill that. Suddenly, post-1978, from being a unified, classless, in principle, at least state, suddenly you had economic reforms that were splitting people into the working class, the the middle class, the upper classes. Suddenly there were economic interests at stake and there was nothing really binding the people together. And they were looking over the USSR and that was collapsing in the late 80s. So they really couldn't turn around and suddenly be like well we're we're not communists anymore because that that was entirely the, the legitimacy of their party and what they stood for since the very beginning um so what they did was they moved away from socialism and communism into a narrative of nationalism and they were so intentional about that that they actually increased the amount of of museums and the kind of propaganda that they were sending from the state to build this new narrative and all kinds of telling things. So, for example, um, back before 1978, the the country claimed that all Chinese people came from the Great Plains, and genetically they came from this one, this one prototype of, of a species called the Peking Man. And scientists were like, "Hold on a second, that's not actually fully true, if at all." Um, but that was the way that that the Chinese state back then would be like, you know, we're all from one place, we're all equal Chinese people. But following market reforms and so on, there was so much unrest in the country that the Communist Party had to find a new way of bringing everyone back into the fold while still respecting their different origins so what they did is that they changed the narrative completely and they were like actually genetically we're very dissimilar um and they started like how
1: can you how can you go completely the opposite you know again <laughs> exactly. similar story right you just go completely the opposite um within a matter of months almost
0: and well you, you use science again you politicize the science of it all, which again is fascinating um but alongside that they would go into places um and really, really promote the local narratives. But what was interesting was that it wasn't like, oh, you know, look at this village where we have a long history of wealthy bankers and look what they did for for this village, which again, would be a story that wouldn't have been able to be told during the, the, the kind of hardline communist period. Um, But the idea that surrounded it wasn't, oh, wow, look at the pride of our local cultures. It's like, look at these cultures that are amazing which make up the whole of china it was always bringing it back to the idea of the chinese nation um and yeah so complete change uh to nationalism and i think also what's really interesting is for example as much as we have these changes in ideology it's often the physical spaces that we can't change to to fit that narrative so take the the ancient iran museum that you were talking about for example. As much yeah, at the end of the day,
1: the building, the building is the building,
0: right? Like you can't change
1: it, and it has its own story to tell. And anyone who just reads about that will know what the agenda was initially when first opening it up and
0: inaugurating it. Mm, Exactly, you know, the architect was a French dude that just incorporated early Persian architecture into the design and uh, otherwise being a a western aestheticized building Um, and there's actually a really exciting example um, if a little bit tragic example of uh, this place in Shanghai and so in the early 2000s it was a really dilapidated neighborhood of Shanghai it had a lot of charm because it was one of these original old Shanghai neighborhoods that you see in movies and are kind of exoticized by the west right and it was kind of a shame in any case from a historical perspective that it had been left to to wither away so the the shanghai government let this hong kong developer do it up and i guess in some ways it's it's symbolically important that it was a hong kong developer you know um and this guy built it up again and made it into this really swanky trendy upscale restaurant district um but what was really interesting is that this neighborhood was also where the first Communist Party Congress had happened. And there was this really important hall for the history of the Communist Party that was in the middle of this neighborhood. And suddenly you had all these extremely capitalist restaurants and shops just around the corner. Um, and you you got things like a nightclub called Shanghai Nights, uh, which is not really doing any credit to the whole, that's not exoticized, you know, other places outside the West. Um, but the my favorite actually you know symbol of the transition that the country has gone through is uh, this this tapas bar okay so you know spanish cuisine you know suddenly in shanghai makes sense um and to make it even more millennial (laughs) and millennial socialist it's a tapas bar in shanghai called che Guevara. (laughs) and uh, i mean can you get a better symbol for all of this than that
1: (laughs) i mean you know leave the poor guy alone right if it's not oversold t-shirts then it's a tapas bar to promote tourism in in a previously you know dilapidated part of of china like i just don't understand <laughs> uh-huh. like let the guy
0: rest already <laughs> and you know as much as this 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 place signals the new era and the market economy in china around the corner you have the very beginnings of the super communist chinese state well one thing i think we were talking about um before
1: was You know, you have this powerful elite sort of dictating to the rest in order to gain this sort of critical mass that they needed in order to promote their national sentiment through these national museums. And the reason why national museums were so important at that time was because you could use physical evidence to support your claims. Not necessarily that it was correct, but it was there. It was, there was something in the flesh. There was something tangible to see. And that makes me think along with other things, what now, right? You've got a new world where to a very large extent, the world is a lot smaller. Yes, we're going through this populist wave in a lot of ways, but it's a lot less Well, it's a lot more borderless. It's a much more diverse uh, world. And on top of that, a lot of it is much less um, tangible. There's a lot of digital history now. And that makes me think, one, what's next for the National Museum? Do they soon become obsolete? And two, what's next for museums as a whole? Like, what are they going to promote what are they going to show
0: Mm, i think like the key word there is how do we address diversity when the very project of a national museum was about establishing a single coherent narrative and yeah on your question of what does the future museum look like people that have been grappling on similar themes that we've been talking about in the podcast so particularly to do with the question of okay you know if we do want a museum that doesn't have power dictating narratives dynamics etc what what does that look like and that's kind of been married with the new you know like postmodernist vibe of perhaps like there isn't one voice when it comes to most things or when it comes to everything so what we have to do is house all these different voices in one place and there's some really cool examples of that being the case so you know like actually if i look to my own country to peru we had a really terrible time um and in the 80s and 90s with terrorism and it's something that i'm extremely aware of not because i lived through it because it was before i was born but because it's the kind of thing that your parents tell you about you know um bombs being set off in schools and in entire streets and living in in fear constantly and you know water not working etc um but there's all kinds of nuances to that particular time in Peru, because firstly, there's the question of who was a victim, because, you know, clearly there were people who were dying um, and had family members dying because of terrorist attacks. Uh, but at the same time, there's a very complicated history about the government's response to to the acts, where they had extremely controversial strategies for trying to overcome the problem. So. Uh, The government was trying to tackle the main organization behind these terrorist attacks called The Shining Path. And they came from a particular town in Peru called Ayacucho. But the way that the government came in was indiscriminate. They would just assume that if you fit the profile of these revolutionary terrorists, um, you know, young-ish, kind of 20-year-old or early 30-year-old male um, from these areas of Peru, then they would almost assume that you were part of these movements. And so they would go in with the military into these places.
1: It was profiling, basically.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't so much that it could be called profiling because it wasn't particularly formalized. They would just go in and either arrest people or, as they would say, you know, disappear them for questioning and obviously torture them and do all kinds of things. Um, And, you know, the human rights abuses are clear. Um, So for the people that were living in places like Ayacucho, you know, they're as much of the victims uh, of government, of government violence as people in Lima, for example, were of terrorist violence. You know, they had people that where their family was being taken away and never come back. They, they don't even know where their bodies are to bury them, uh, who, you know, weren't terrorists. They were just people that fit the profile. Um, And the government just didn't care enough to differentiate which one was which or didn't have the resources or, you know, there's all kinds of arguments, you know, of People feeling strongly about all kinds of things. Some people say perhaps it was just fake us to get rid of the problem, but other people are like, yes, but we're not gonna be utilitarian about my brother who died, you know, like uh so anyway, so clearly really complex. So that's only the who is the victim question. And then there's a the question of you know, terrorist attacks targeted Lima because it was where you know it's the capital of the country, politics is centered there there's also uh, like a class element because it's like you know communist revolutionaries attacking kind of the more capitalist center of the country um so if you live in lima your experience of it is very different from if you live in the countryside where you know most of the the rank and file of these organizations came from um and that has like implications for privilege and class and say like cosmopolitanism versus like you know rural viewpoints etc so you know imagine taking all of these complex issues. Um and then <laughs> what happened was that by accident, Lima got a museum to commemorate uh sorry, commemorate. My English isn't very good. So I don't know if that's the right word, but like to memorialize or like to honor what happened and the victims and the stories that need to be told about it. Um, so you know the reason that it was it came out by accident was because in, in 2009 the development agency from the German government came to Peru and they were like, here's $2 million if you want it. Um, and it's for a plan for you guys to build this museum uh, memorializing the terrorist period. And the government refused, right? And it was kind of kept hush hush until a newspaper found out and released the information. And there was so much outcry about how the government had rejected so much funding that then they had to like, because of popular pressure, they just had to do it. Um, and so many things, i mean i'm laughing because it's like tragic um just things just went so wrong
1: i think that's actually interesting as well yeah um that i think this is the first time that we are hearing of the other way around right where it's not a top-down approach if anything the top didn't want it
0: that's really yeah i hadn't thought about that
1: the people the people are the ones who are demanding it
0: right right yeah that's so true um and so let me tell you a bit more about all the politics behind what happened. So, um, you right. know, they, they had to assign someone uh, to be the director of this this project. Um, and they chose mm-hmm. this guy. Sorry, I say a guy. He's a, he's a you know noble literature laureate. Called, yeah. <laughs> this bloke, yeah, uh, called Mario Vargas <laughs> Llosa. And he's really interesting because clearly he fits the cultural bill because obviously he's a world-renowned uh, author um but there's like certain complexities about him so if we're talking about this question of who is the victim of this you know he he's you know if we're if we want to honor the fact that a lot of families in say places like i did have people disappear and die unlawfully you know he kind of honors that in a way because he has a legacy of being anti-authoritarian um a lot of his books are about that actually um so that's, you know, in a way great because perhaps that story is going to get told. But on on the other hand, he's extremely Lima, you know, he's he's quite westernized. He's, you know, the part of the intellectual elite of the country and has like very different lived experiences to the people that, you know, of, you know, of some of the, the voices that we want to honor or, you know, wanted to honor um, back when this project was still in in, in the works. Um, and then the other element is that, funnily enough, uh, the president that undertook all these authoritarian, unlawful actions with human rights abuses was actually the candidate that won the election against Mario Vargas Llosa <laughs> in 1989. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, like, I, I mean, I imagine he's good enough of a guy to not have any lingering resentment about that. But like, you know, who knows? Uh so anyway, so that was, you know, not great. I mean, a lot of like unresolved questions about how to do this. And yeah, and then, well, he got replaced because there was a controversy about that. And then, you know, looking back at the at the importance of names, this, this project started out being called the Museum of Memory, um, which sounds less cumbersome in Spanish, but the Museum of Memory. And then they were very clear about what museum meant, you know, like all the kinds of things we were talking about. So they changed the name to place of memory because it seemed like they were because museums seemed like it was coming forward with an objective idea of what the facts were, whereas place seemed more like there is no narrative, it's just like narratives and a place, you know, where we can reflect. Um and then that wasn't enough, and they changed it to place of memory, tolerance, and social inclusion. And actually what's quite cool about the museum is that they, they there's all kinds of of frictions and how they achieve this but if you do go to the museum it's um it's a space that doesn't have a narrative it's it's you looking at different voices of what they thought the conflict was like so you literally have projections of people telling their own stories what's particularly nice is that you have um you have people from Ayacucho telling their stories in Quechua you know not in Spanish which is like the the Spanish that most kind of cosmopolitan people would only know and like they wouldn't know Quechua but you know like it's honored you know even as far as going to like Quechua and translating it um and you have people from the military that suffered their own violence um you know people that were in the military fighting terrorists you have families that were in Ayacucho and were subject to like government violence you know you have as wide as as you can of voices, which is really great in terms of like this idea of what does the new museum look like. But what's interesting, um, and I mean, I say this because it's interesting, not because I'm like trying to criticize the museum so much, Um, but you know, a big question about this again is, you know, was Fujimori, who was the president in the nineties that, you know, largely solved the terrorism issue, was he justified? In concentrating power and running an autocratic government to solve this issue, um, there were a n- number of other goals, including the economy. But you know, this was one of the biggest issues in Hawaii uh, of of his of his administration. Um, and to this day, people are very divided in Peru about whether that was justified or not. And what's interesting is that you know, despite the fact that, in terms of victim, uh, you know, who is the victim, question it's very diverse there's many different viewpoints but the the more sneaky question of was it okay to forget democracy for 10 or so years for the sake of solving these kind of issues there's a very clear answer and the answer is no <laughs> uh right and it's, right. it's it's not posed like that you know it's it's all kinds of plex, uh saying things like you know the only way that society can move forward is through respect of human rights and democracy. And and obviously, like, you know, there's, like, nothing to take issue with that with, like, yes, you know, human rights are obviously really important, and we should be, you know, extremely cognizant and respecting and upholding these things. Um, but, like, the subtext of that, as much as, like, maybe true, like, the subtext of that is, like, okay, how, like, hold on a second here. Like, that authoritarian yeah, stuff where, that went on. Yeah, went wrong in the 90s then. Yes, uh, uh, that's not okay. And because obviously that's like the less important question. Nobody really cares about that because like, we'd rather have everyone's voices respected about victims rather than, you know, what is your point or perspective on like democracy versus not on the period. Uh, but yeah, like, again, going back to the question of power, like we've solved one level, but there's still like another level, which is, you know, still a thing, not as important as the other one, but there's clearly... Uh, a narrative there which is again interesting yeah Um, yeah so i don't know what you think about like do you think it's an effective way to treat um like contested narratives um i don't know what do you think perhaps the question is more do you think it's ever possible to faithfully represent many voices Mm, personally
1: not because uh at that point uh, when you're trying to faithfully represent, a, you know, many different voices, you pretty much need everyone to chip in, right? If there's just one, say, coordinator, mm-hmm. there, there's always going to be some sort of bias, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why there's such thing as, you know, even just democracy as a whole, because, we, or, or representative democracy rather, because you can't have everyone chip in on a decision every single time, you know, you, you represent people Mm -hmm. to voice your opinion. Unfortunately, half the time they don't do it, but, um, the, that's, you know, the point of representative democracy. And also, I, I don't know how far that goes into solving the problem unless you almost retrospectively go back, um, and you do this for almost every museum as well. Or try and have like a rival museum for the exact same you know artifacts or the same mm-hmm. sort of themes as national museums and and take take it from the side of the you know colonized uh and 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 colonial subjects for example mm-hmm. or you know even at that point there's a debate it was like well why is it even happening in that particular country why is it not happening in in, in you know the um you know in in those countries that were colonized, like surely there should be like this repatriation and stuff like mm-hmm. th- there's there's a lot of different um arguments that can be thrown around, even just the general ethics of a museum if you think about it like why you know why why should someone like you know i don't why does the British museum have like sarcophaguses or whatever like they they shouldn't technically like they just took them you know mm-hmm. um it's not theirs to take and i think at that point there's just a lot of discussions that are on the table of you know one the ethics the ethical side two yes the the voices that are are, um, put on display Mm -hmm. and three i guess you know doesn't matter anymore um and or should we not be moving on to something else? Maybe, maybe there's another way to do this, um, mm. but yeah.
0: And I think for, for us both, this topic strikes a, a nice chord. Like it's it's quite reflective in that we normally, we, we normally take all these identities and, and ideas of a nation for granted, uh, or not for granted, more like we assume that the way that things are portrayed are are the correct way or the best way. And increasingly, people are becoming critical of of these these assumptions we just take from, say, older generations or from things in authority. Um, but I think, as as the season migrant, as as addressing the kinds of things we want to talk about in terms of belonging and and multiculturalism and and having open borders and so on, I think it's it's healthy to take on these lessons from museums, for example. You know, we have the symbol of of, of narratives that we believe to be authoritative and objective but actually there's so much to unpack there and i think having that approach to to cultural life in general to to assumptions in general is, is really healthy and it allows us to um to really see what's what what what's the creation of of particular interest and what actually is real um, <laughs> to put it very metaphysically <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories
0: coming up in
1: future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant.
0: If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback. So let us know what you loved and how we could improve.
1: You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.